This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 85. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Now, contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cisgender, white dudes. No. Yes, there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist allegedly and we are wendy and beth she's wendy i'm beth we're not journalists investigators or psychologists just a couple of gals interested in true crime also the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that our opinions please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294 and we may feature it on a future episode also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join the discussion by using the hashtag Fruit Loops Pod Discussion or by joining our Facebook group. All of the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. That's right. And if you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App or become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. We also have some merch for sale on our website. But if you can't help monetarily, no problem. You can always give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And be sure to share our show with your friends. So who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Michael Deverne Terry, who killed six men in Atlanta between December 6, 1985 and October 20th, 1986. All right. But before we get into it, how you doing? I'm hanging in there. Um, The governor of Arizona announced today that they would be closing bars, gyms, movie theaters, and other businesses due to the increase in COVID-19 cases, Mm. uh, which doesn't really affect me because I've just been staying home. (laughs) (laughs) And it's good because we we never should have reopened. Uh, Mm -hmm. People here have not been social distancing and wearing masks. So I guess we need a timeout. Yeah, we need a big old fat time out. Um, yeah. I you this is the first I'm hearing of this. So I am glad about it. Um, yeah, I still unfortunately have to go in the office two days a week. But yeah, me uh, too. This but other than that, me. I don't go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. We did open too soon. And it's actually kind of scary because um, our ICU <laughs> beds are at like 90%. Capacity. Yeah, the hospital next to where I live, um, expanded their ICU into the children's hospital. Yeah, no, the Children's Hospital in Central Phoenix are taking kids out to make room 
for, for um, the ICU, the adults. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So stuff's bad out there. Look, look alive, guys. It's yeah. crazy. It's not that part <laughs> in the show yet, but you need to know. <laughs> so, yeah, wear your masks, wash your hands, stay home if you can. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's, that's about all we can do. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, let's get into some listener letters, huh? Yeah, happier a little note. happier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, angels. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What's in that bag, Beth? What you got in that bag? Well, Tanya on Facebook said, Hi, ladies. The episode I'm listening to today has me crying. (laughs) (laughs) Episode 69, Cleophis Prince Jr., Part 2. When Beth said, White people facts by Beth, I died. (laughs) (laughs) I can't stop laughing. Your podcast is amazing. I've been listening since last fall, and because of Rona, I've had plenty of time to binge the episodes. I love true crime, so it's thrilled to happen upon you your show. Thank you for shining a light on BIPOC serial killers, etc. that are out there. We rarely hear about them unless it helps the narrative. Can't wait to get onto your Patreon. Side note, the episode with Minnie was fire. The three of you were hilarious. Thanks for that one as well. See, I told you I was binging them. (laughs) She really was. Well, Miss Tanya. Thank you so much. Um, Keep them coming. We love the love and we also love giving you your shine when you give us that love. Yes. Um, So we got an IGDM from uh, Samantha who works in the recovery space. And um, on on the last episode that aired, we got into, Beth and I got into a discussion about the word alcoholic. And I'm someone who's sort of reexamining my relationship with alcohol. And I personally hate the word alcoholic. So Samantha said, um, listening to your most recent episode, it's amazing as always, and just wanted to give you a little insight on the word alcoholic since you discussed it and she works in addiction medicine. She said, we don't like to use the words alcoholic or addict because it is highly stigmatizing and defines people based on their disease, something that in the medical field avoids for other diseases, like not calling out individuals with diabetes as diabetics, but doesn't seem to care about when it comes to substance use disorders or mental illness. And she said, just want to emphasize that alcohol use disorder is a disease that is already highly stigmatized in language such as this when used by friends, family members, healthcare professionals, etc., can be a huge barrier to successful treatment. Sorry if this isn't helpful at all, LOL, just on my anti-stigma soapbox. Uh, (laughs) Thanks for another wonderful episode, XOXO, and I just want to say thank you, Samantha, for helping us further this conversation and get it right. Uh, So hip-hop air horns to you. And we have some new patrons, so get ready for your tunes. All right, Chandler. There's no better snake handler than Chandler. And Savage One. Okay, get ready. I'm about to do Megan Thee Stallion. You a savage. Uh, classy, moody, ratchet. Uh, acting stupid. What's happening? What's happening? You a savage. Uh, and okay, thank you very much. This next one uh, is uh, for Carol Palmer. And this is a, another uh, Reggae the Stallion spoof. Uh, Carol Palmer killed her husband, whacked him. 
can tell me that it didn't happen. (laughs) Uh, And then I took that from TikTok. But anyway, that's for Carol. And then Allison is another new patron. Allison, I know true crime is killing you. Oh, Allison. My crime is true. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Yeah, hip hop everyone. <laughs> yes, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thanks for indulging me. Uh, so now we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to get into the story when we come back. Hello! Hello. Welcome to BSP Believer Skeptic Podcast. The podcast for two idiots debate weird phenomena. I'm Chris. I'm the believer. I'm Cody. I'm the skeptic. We are an LGBTQ paranormal comedy podcast. (laughs) And this is how it works. Every week, we pick a strange but fascinating paranormal topic, such as... La Llorona. Voodoo. Crimes of passion. Empaths. Holiday traditions. Cryptids. Conspiracy theories. Incorruptibles. Ghosts. Telekinesis. Mind control. Deja vu. True crime. Medical miracles. Simulacra. Cursed artifacts. The apocalypse. Stigmata. (sighs) All right, and after presenting you with a lot of really fun information... I tell you why I believe... And then I debunk the crap out of it. Uh, Of course. (laughs) And along the way, you might find some um, really TMI information. Some gay humor. And also some um, sexual innuendos. So tune in, have fun, and bye! So we are back. So Beth, who is our subject today? Today we're talking about Michael Deverne Terry, a black man who killed six male sex workers in 1985 to 86, all within a 14 mile radius in Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah, it's kind of wild when you pull up the map. Some yeah. of them were killed in the same place, like right, uh, and oh, again, very close to each other. So now we're going to get into some stats. Brah! <laughs> Okay, Michael Deverne Terry, a.k.a. James Potts, a.k.a. Mr. T, a.k.a. Big Mike, uh, had six uh, victims, six murder victims, occurring between the dates, as Beth said, December 6, 1985 and October 20th, 1986. He shot most of his victims and stabbed them uh, after he would have sex with them. His victims were, let's speak their names, King, uh, Richard Williams was 24, Curtis Lee Brown was 21, Alvin George was 31. Jason McCauley was 18, George Willingham was 30, and Daryl O. Williams was 20. And uh, Terry was on the DL. Welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. Uh, when an individual is on the DL or the down low, uh, in the Black community, maybe in others too, um, refers to them having a secret relationship. It usually refers to a man who's on the down low. Uh, when a man publicly identifies as heterosexual but secretly engages in sex with men secretly, a.k.a. on the down low. Ever heard hmm. of it? I have, actually. Um okay. The first time I ever heard about it was on a uh, Law and Order episode. Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah, it was uh, SVU. Mm, yeah, that's so one of my favorites. They taught me something. <laughs> there you go. Speaking of SVU, I read Elliot's coming back, and I only read it on Twitter, so who knows if it's true? I I read it too. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. Anyway, now we're gonna <laughs> dive into the setting. Splish splash. Take us there, Beth. 
This story takes place in Atlanta, Georgia in the late 1980s. Atlanta has an immense, rich history that will be impossible for us to get to in one episode. But if you don't know, now you know. Here's a little taste. <laughs> That's right. The region where Atlanta and its suburbs rests was originally, surprise, surprise, Creek and Cherokee Native American territory. The British came in and systematically removed Native Americans from northern Georgia from 1802 to 1825. American government was established in Georgia and the Georgia Railroad helped the economy thrive. The city of Atlanta became a busy center for cotton distribution on the backs of enslaved Black people. The Black proportion of Atlanta's population became much higher after the Civil War when freed slaves came to Atlanta in search of opportunity. Atlanta became an industrial and commercial center of the South and a center for Black education. Some of our greatest HBCUs like Atlanta University, Morehouse, Clark, Spelman, them bad girls at Spelman, and Morris Brown <laughs> were established in Atlanta. As Atlanta grew, so did racial tensions. Atlanta was a major organizing center of the civil rights movement in the late 50s and 1960s, led by Martin Luther King Jr. Atlanta's leadership fostered the motto, the city that's too busy to hate. Have you heard that? I have. Yeah, yeah. me too. So now let's get into LGBTQ history in Atlanta. In 1817, sodomy was illegal and the law was enforced and punished by life in prison, which is just ridiculous. Insane. Yeah. Yeah. In 1949, the state amended its sodomy law, reducing the compulsory life sentence to just, uh, you know, one to 10 years. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> the Georgia Supreme Court struck down the state's sodomy law in 1998, which was like, what, just a little over 20 years ago. That's yeah. crazy. Pretty, yeah. And it was the last of the 50 states to do so. So progress, question mark, yeah, question mark? progress, but... That's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is nuts. Insane. In 1971, the Georgia Gay Liberation Front led the first Pride Parade from Peachtree Street to Piedmont Park with about 100 participants. This was two years after the Stonewall Riot in New York. And today, the ATL Pride Parade occurs in October and attracts around 200,000 participants. In 1974, the Atlanta Barb was founded, the first gay newspaper. In 1976, the Atlanta Gay Center was opened. In 1983, the Atlanta Campaign for Human Rights, currently Georgia Equality, was established. And in 1996, Atlanta hosted the Olympics and hosted the Atlanta Gay and Lesbian Visitors Center for LGBTQ tourists. In 1970, Atlanta's per capita income was about equal to the national average, while the rest of the state had a per capita income that was only 71.9% of the national average. So uh, that's where you go to make that, make, make, make the, make the bag. Dollars. Yeah. Get the bag. <laughs> <laughs> make the bag as yeah. the white folks say. <laughs> make the bag. This has been white, 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 white culture corner with, yeah, with, with Beth. Beth. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> a city too busy to hate where you could get your bag. <laughs> uh, since 1970, the average growth rate of per capita income has been faster in Atlanta than in the rest of the state, causing the gap between Atlanta and non-Atlanta to grow wider. From 1979 to 1981, there were about 29 murders in the Atlanta area that appeared to be linked. Most of the victims were boys and all of them were black. The majority were children. The killing spree was dubbed the Atlanta Child Murders. And in 1980, Atlanta was named America's murder capital with the nation's highest per capita homicide rate. Ooh, um, fear and frustration gripped black neighborhoods as the Atlanta police refused to draw a connection between these cases. And the city's administration did little to calm the community's fears. Attention was only brought to the murders when community activists pushed for accountability over the investigations of the slain children. And this might surprise you, but nobody has ever been convicted of the Atlanta child murders. But in 1981, Wayne Williams was arrested for the murder of two young men in Atlanta, and many believe that he was the man behind the Atlanta child murders. And this is a subject that we'll probably cover in a future episode. Absolutely. Um, Because many white people in the community believe it was Wayne and many black people in the community were certain that it was the Klan. Um, So today, Atlanta is the epicenter of LGBTQ life in the South, right on. Uh, It has a vibrant LGBTQ community and holds one of the biggest pride parades in the Southeast. The state's hate crime law effective, oh boy, uh, three days ago, June 26, (laughs) 2020, explicitly excludes um, discrimination um, based on sexual orientation. And there has been great progress with regard to Black people and LGBTQ rights um, in the United States and Atlanta being a good example of that. But we still have a long way to go until everybody has uh, their fair share of equity. Equity is what we need. Equality is what people want. Anyway, uh, so now we're going to get into the killer's early life. What do you got, Beth? Well, unfortunately, we don't know much about Michael Terry's early life. Shoot. (laughs) We believe that he was born in Alabama and grew up in Tallahassee. Uh, I think that's how it's pronounced. Not sure. Mm. Tallahassee. Tallahassee, mm. Tallahassee, something like that. Sure, yeah. A small town about 30 miles east of Montgomery. He had an arrest record going back to 1980, and charges included burglary, robbery, simple battery, aggravated assault, and carrying a pistol without a license. Terry moved to Atlanta in 1983 and worked in a tire recapping plant in Lithonia, uh, just outside of Atlanta. He lived in a two-story rooming house on Kennesaw Avenue in Atlanta. Neighbors in the rooming house said that he was a quiet man who kept to himself. Friends called him Mr. T due to his large build. A pity to fool. <laughs> <laughs> One friend named Gus Johnson, who lived in the rooming house and worked with him at a tire plant for a time, said that they were drinking buddies and that Terry was easygoing and would give you anything that he had and that if you didn't bother him, he would not bother you. He said Terry spent most of his time alone in his room and never had visitors, male or female. A female acquaintance said that he was a nice guy who stuck to himself, and she assumed that it was because he was overweight. Some described him as a strange person who liked to hang out on the streets and that he almost always carried a pistol. Yeah, and and one of those stories was that he would, uh, I guess in the rooming house, they had a communal kitchen. Uh-huh. And he would wear a pistol 
in the kitchen too. Oh. <laughs> he oh. took it every everywhere. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's really something. Well, I mean, Second Amendment rights, am I right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> So now we're going to get into the timeline. Hit it, Beth. On December 6, 1985, the body of 24-year-old Richard Williams from South Carolina was found in a vacant building behind a house on Mason Turner Road. He had a gunshot wound to the back of his head and two knife wounds. Mm. On December 14, 1985, 21-year-old Curtis Lee Brown went out for a pack of cigarettes and never came home. Five hours later, the body of an unidentified black man was found in Dean Rusk Park. The victim had been shot twice in the head, his pants pulled down, and he was stripped of his ID. The body was not identified as Curtis Brown until four days later when his girlfriend filed a missing persons report. Detectives then looked into his final hours, tracing the victim to a neighborhood tavern. Employees remembered him there on the night of his death, and they thought he had left with another Black customer known as Big Mike. Mm. On um, March 20th, 1986, the body of 31-year-old Alvin George from Columbus, Ohio, who was found in an alley off Kennesaw Avenue, had been stabbed to death with multiple stab wounds to the neck. On April 6, 1986, the body of Jason B. McCauley, 18, was found in the same alley that Alvin George had been found. He had also been stabbed to death with the same type of stab wounds to the neck. A witness recalled seeing Jason McCauley with a man matching Big Mike's description on the night that he died. Um, so he is on a roll. On mm-hmm. uh, September 13th, 1986, approximately 5 p.m., the body of George Willingham, 30, was found in a vacant field near Stone Mountain Freeway. His clothing was in disarray with his pants and underwear pulled down around his ankles and his shirt open. He had sustained three gunshot wounds to the head, which seems unnecessary excessive Uh, yeah yeah, one of which was to the back of the skull uh there was also a series of long linear incisions in his chest area also overkill yeah yeah on october 20th 1986 the decomposing body of 20 year old daryl williams from ohio was found inside an abandoned apartment building on harwell street the lot which backs up against the building where richard williams had been found he had been killed with a gunshot to the back of his head daryl's body had been left with his pants pulled down around his knees so i'm sensing a pattern here um it took several days to identify him he was last seen alive in a bar on october 5th and there were was no trace of his movements from that night on. People in Atlanta, particularly in the gay community, were very alarmed. This was the second string of black male killings in Atlanta, the first being the Atlanta child murders. Mm-hmm. Leaders in the gay community said that the murders underscored their concern over a growing pattern of random violence directed against gays in Atlanta. Mm. 
Uh, well, whatever's going on, authorities are not paying attention. Um, yeah. Police did not at first tie the murders together. Shocking. The fact that the police <laughs> did not see an immediate pattern in the murders of six men was attributed to the fact that two of the victims had been stabbed to death and the others shot. And the bodies were found in four parts of the city that had been assigned to six different detectives working on three different shifts. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and that, um, that's one thing thing that I've heard pointed out is that there's like 17,000 police departments in the United States and they none of them talk to each other um, or swap information. Yeah, they're kind of jealous of each other. Like they they don't want anybody to get the glory. They want the glory. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's so childish. Difficult. Yeah. Meanwhile, people are dying. Sexual assaults are happening. I mean, (laughs) what's going on? Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, But there were stark similarities to the crimes as well. The victims were all male and the bodies were all discovered with their pants having either been pulled down or opened. Three of the victims had been discovered in the same area and two victims were discovered in the same alley off of Kennesaw Avenue. Okay. Four victims had gunshot wounds to the back of the head and autopsies showed that four of the victims had engaged in anal sex prior to death. The other two had not had anal examinations during autopsy, to which I say, what the fuck? Yeah. (laughs) Why? not uh, do those exams. I mean, uh, if they were women, they would have, I think. Yeah, I it just seems lazy. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, we can just close this case. Uh, yeah. We don't really guy. care. No problem. Case yeah. closed. Case closed. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a bullet recovered from Will- Willingham's body and a bullet recovered from the body of another victim were 38 caliber bullets. It was later learned that they came from the same weapon. The bullets recovered from two of the other victims were also 38 caliber bullets from the same gun, but not the same gun as that used on the other victims. Three of the victims sustained similar stab wounds. Um, so now we're going to dive into the investigation and arrest. Push by. About a week after the body of Daryl Williams was found, a routine review of unsolved murders finally linked the cases. Mm. Detectives Sheila Cumberworth, a 39-year-old white woman, and Marcellus Head, a 43-year-old black man, each had been assigned to one of the killings. And after the pattern was noticed, they began working together on all six. I don't say this much, but this is some good, some good police. This is a good police team. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They, there was an article I read about them and uh, it was kind of a cute article. Yeah. About them. Yeah. 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 I got, I got that impression when I read an article or two about this case and their, pic, their cute little picture and stuff. Yeah. Working together. Um, They need a show. <laughs> they need a movie <laughs> about them. Yeah. Uh, what, would we, what would we call it? Cumberworth and Head or Head and Cumberworth. <laughs> She's a gun-toting Southern Belle that takes no nonsense. And Head, he's a, uh, I don't know. Anyway, I'll go back to the drawing board. How about Sheila and Marcellus? Ooh, I like that better. Yeah, Sheila and Marcellus. I say it every episode. Is Netflix listening to us? Because we have such golden ideas. Not that they need our help, but I'm just saying. There's lots of uh, ideas to mine in these stories. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Um, 
maybe we should stop sharing our ideas, our ideas so we can just start um, right off into the sunset yeah. and be rich. <laughs> just start uh, producing them ourselves. Why not? <laughs> Uh, So investigating meant long hours of reading case files, backtracking crime scenes, and talking to anyone who might know the victims or the suspect. Their workdays included 12-hour shifts together. After speaking to witnesses and friends and acquaintances of the victims, they developed a suspect known as Mike. Victims Alvin George and Jason McCauley had both been found in an alley off of Kennesaw Avenue. People living around that area were interviewed by police, including people who lived in Terry's rooming house on Kennesaw Avenue. The alley where the bodies had been found was directly behind his building. While investigating, one of the people in the boarding house mentioned Michael Terry. The name and the description fit Big Mike, the only suspect that they had at this point. Two bodies had been found behind his rooming house. Uh-oh. Ballistics, te- ballistics <laughs> test showed that the same two guns were used in four of the killings, and Terry was known to own multiple guns. Detectives Head and Cumberworth, Head and Cumberworth, felt that it was too much of a coincidence. <laughs> Sheila and Marcellus. Sheila and Marcellus. <laughs> I, and I, you know what? I think there's probably more to that story. Um, how they they zeroed in on him and yeah, and uh, arrested him. Uh, but that's all we know. So yeah, yeah, you're right. It, it, I mean, it would be a pretty juicy like the case we covered last week with, and there was one of our big sources was the 5280 article. Right. Um, and there was so much um, sort of input from that one officer who discovered um, the guy's crimes like after like postmortem. Yeah. And what these two did is remarkable and worth like a, a New York Times a story. Piece. Yeah. 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 I would love to hear more about this story about yeah. how they how they zeroed in on him. But this these are spare facts are all we know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, on November 28th, 1986, Detective Head arrested Michael Terry at his place of work. And in the meantime, Detective Cumberworth executed a search warrant on the boarding house. After his arrest, a pistol was found hidden in a box where Terry had been positioned at work. It's my gun in a box. It's my gun <laughs> in a box, baby. It's my gun in a box. Um, so, uh, after his arrest, but prior to giving an incriminatory, sorry, let me read that again. I was too caught up in my song. Um, (laughs) after his arrest, but prior to giving any incriminatory, incriminatory admissions, he stated that he, he, he wished to tell them about it. Terry admitted shooting George Willingham in with a 38 caliber weapon and stabbing him. He also admitted that he had three handguns and that he had used two of these handguns to shoot victims and that one of his handguns was a 38 caliber Smith and Wesson. Oh my gosh, that's so convoluted. <laughs> like what? Wait, can you, can yeah, you so say that, that again? That gun over bunch there. Yeah, I have a bunch of guns, but that one was used this one time. This and one. The, the one I uh, used. in the box in a box was used for this one thing. And then, yeah. And then I used those two to shoot one victim. Yeah. And, and then I stabbed him and yeah. ugh, just so convoluted. Like mm-hmm. what, what is going through this guy's mind that he has to, I don't know. Use so yeah, many weapons. That story is a hot mess. Yes. This is the messiest of ho stories. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so here, let's dive into some more. <laughs> here we go. You ready? Oh, yeah. I'm buckled in. <laughs> Take a deep breath. <laughs> <laughs> Two of the bullets recovered from Willingham's body were 38 caliber bullets, and one was a 32 caliber bullet. Terry said that he shot George Willingham with two different guns. He also admitted that he killed the victims after he had had sex with them and became angry. Um, and I was wondering, because this wasn't mentioned, um, is if there were any substances involved in like the courtship and the sex. I did not see any mention of substances. Right. Now, he did meet some of them in bars, so there's probably alcohol involved, but I didn't see anything about drugs. Just curious. Um, you know, I drugs. love, yeah, I love hearing about <laughs> drugs. Uh, so he said that he met the men in bars or he would go somewhere in a known area for sex work and wait for a man to approach him. He would find a wall or something to sit on and then just wait until he was approached. When a proposition was made or accepted, the two would go to a place nearby. But the killings, he claimed, were simply self-defense. I didn't want to hurt anyone, Terry said, but they took advantage of me. Um, That's a lot of self-defense. Yeah, Big Mac, <laughs> uh, two guns, one person. Uh, <laughs> try again. Yeah, a little bit of overkill. Yeah, try again, Big Mike. <laughs> Organizations in the gay community urged Mayor Andrew Young and the Public Safety Commissioner George Knapper to declare that violence against gays will not be tolerated and to train police officers to look more closely at hatred of gays as a motive in assaults and killings involving gay people. Did they listen, though? Uh, in addition to the murders, gays in Atlanta had been the victims of several assaults, including a man who was doused with lighter fluid and burned. Oh my God. Jesus Christ. But police did not believe that the murders had a connection to hatred against gays. Um, do do they need a bigger clue? Like, uh, <laughs> can I get hate crime for a thousand, Alex? Like, what else? What else do you need? Uh, they called the victims street hustlers uh, who did whatever they could to make a buck that they may not have thought of themselves as gay and that some of them had girlfriends. Oh, my God. So, guys. yeah, they're they're just saying that. Well, these guys weren't really gay. So, you yeah. know, it's um, not a hate crime. <laughs> Oh, boy. Yeah. See, that's, that's a problem that yeah. uh, needs correcting. <laughs> Richard Swanson of the Atlanta Gay Center said that the fact that the police said Mr. Terry had sexual relations with his victims, it did not preclude hatred of homosexuals as a motive in the slayings. Some percentage of violent acts committed against homosexuals involve people who are suffering from internalized homophobia, who are gay themselves and are unable to come to terms with their own sexual feelings, he said. Yeah, nail on the head. Mm -hmm. uh, so now we're going to get into the trial. What do you got, Beth? Terry's case went to trial in February of 1987 on two counts of murder, those of victims Richard Williams and Curtis Brown. The state did not seek the death penalty. During the trial, Terry recanted his confessions to police. He took the stand and claimed that he confessed only because the police would not believe that he did not commit the crimes. I mean, of all the reasons <laughs> to <laughs> recant a statement like uh, they, you know, they beat me into submission or they beat it mm -hmm. out of me or I was coerced. Um, but that's a new one. 
they wouldn't believe me. So so I just said yeah. I did it. Yeah. Uh, he admitted to being with Curtis Brown on the night that he died, but that he did not kill him. He claimed that they had gone to the park to drink, but that Terry had left him there. He claimed that as he was leaving the park, he heard a gunshot, went back to the place where he left Curtis and found him dead. And then just left? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. he had to be at work the next day. I don't know. <laughs> The prosecution painted Terry as a cold-blooded and sadistic serial killer who enjoyed killing people and watching them die, which I think is a little too far. But uh, anyway, the jury deliberated for five hours over a two-day period before finding him guilty on February 22, 1987. Mm. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. True terrors of horror bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Michael Terry was given two consecutive life sentences, which was the maximum penalty. The four other cases were held in reserve just in case his sentence was shortened on appeal. But in April of 1988, the state went forward on the case regarding the murder of George Willingham. And in this case, they did seek the death penalty. 
The trial began on April 11th, 1988. The defense alleged that on the night of the murder, Terry had given George money to purchase, quote unquote, reefer. But mm. the victim, quote unquote, messed up by purchasing cocaine instead. Um, I just think that is a very interesting defense. Um, And I guess it speaks to the times, like it's the 80s, not long after that stupid ass reefer madness <laughs> video oh. or, came out. <laughs> um, Actually, reefer madness is old really old oh i assumed it came out in the 60s but i don't know no i think it came out like the 40s maybe it's old oh and then it came out on like uh videotape and people were making fun of it and having fun with it because it's so ridiculous well perhaps this defense attorney is one of those is from the generation that saw it when he was in school in the 40s and was was like he was on the reefer yeah um (laughs) Because it just seems misinformed. Yeah, please do. 1936. Oh, wow. It is very Very old. old. Yeah. Um, By the way, and if you look into the country's marijuana laws, um, a lot of them, or or drug laws in general, uh, I just watched a documentary. I wish I could think of the name. But a lot of them have to do with race. Um, That uh, marijuana became prohibited because... You know, at, at first, white people are using it all the time, but then they realized black people were using it, too. And then they had to figure out a way to, to um, police those populations. So they made it illegal. Cocaine was something that white people used all the time in medicine and drinks. And then um, they were finding that the um, immigrant workers were using it to help them work harder uh, and longer throughout the day or something like that. And so they were like, we can't have this. They're stealing our jobs. So let's make cocaine illegal. Um, <laughs> Um, just it, it, every every uh, it all has to do with race. That's wow. what I've been trying That's to nuts. say since before we started with Rolos <laughs> two years ago. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, so Terry claimed that during the early morning hours of September 13th, 1986, as he and George were walking together, they began arguing with about the money. And when George refused to give the money back, Terry shot him and then stabbed him with a knife. Terry was found guilty on April 14th, 1988, but the jury deadlocked on the death penalty issue. So a third consecutive sentence of life imprisonment was imposed on April 15th, 1988. All right. Well, that's it for the story. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Okay. Tell us. Terry is currently incarcerated at the Dooley State Prison in Georgia. And as we mentioned earlier, Georgia's hate crime law effective June 26, 2020, mm-hmm. explicitly includes sexual orientation. Right. As a means you cannot dis, dis- uh, correct against yes. somebody for that reason, um, yes. which is great. Uh, And also, we can't forget about the victims uh, whose lives were cut short and their families and friends and just how shook the gay community Community, was at the time. Um, I also wanted to shout out to Mayor Keisha, as I like to call her, uh, but her name is Keisha Lensbottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, who has committed to protecting and serving LGBTQ Atlantans. And she has a whole LGBTQ advisory board in her mayor's office. And there are services and cultural opportunities. um, And Atlanta has been at this for decades and gotten better and better protecting and including um, and serving the LGBTQ community over the time. Um, They have LGBTQ liaisons 
for oh, wow. every branch of government, government police, fire department, cool. uh, Department of Corrections, resources for the unhoused. Um, so while we are not to the mountaintop that MLK had his dream about, uh, there has been some progress and Atlanta can say that in a way that many munici- other municipalities cannot. That's cool. Um, yeah. So now we're going to get into what we think made him snap and our takeaways. Hit it, Beth. So he was gay, or he is gay, and was closeted. Uh, we don't know much about his early life, but it's probable that he was taught early on by his family of origin that being gay was not okay. Mm-hmm. He seemed to hate the fact that he was gay, um, but he was probably conflicted. He wanted companionship and so- sought out these men to get that, but then mm-hmm. would become enraged after he had sex with them. Uh, some people, when they're angry at themselves, will, will direct their anger towards other people. And I believe that is what happened in this case. Yeah. And and that's why I say, I mean, he did some horrible, horrible things. I mean, mm-hmm. he killed people. Uh, yeah. But I think when the prosecution painted him as a cold-blooded, sadistic serial killer who enjoyed killing people and watching them die, I think that was a little too far. I think... Um, you know, he had problems and he had anger issues, but I, I don't see him as uh, somebody who's sadistic and wanted to watch them die. Although I could be wrong. Yeah, I'll, 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 I could be wrong. Yeah. From what what I picked up from the story, I, I, I didn't get that impression either. Um, I agree with you. I think he hated that, which what which is what he was. And he wasn't able to be that freely. Yeah. Um, and that's what on. happens when mm-hmm. you oppress people. It, you know, it comes out in weird ways. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it just leads to anger and yeah. hate. Um, yes. Like the great Yoda says, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering, something like that. Um, but again, he was on the DL and that can cause quite a bit of self self hate and resentment and i agree it probably came from his family of origin but also society yeah, yeah uh, that's this, true yeah this is an element of colonization that i don't think gets talked about enough but before old whitey came in <laughs> communities of color had more than one gender and heterosexual unions um and families led by one man and one woman were not necessarily the rule or the norm right i mean we've talked about how women um led the community and how sometimes entire um uh, family units were just run by women um, in um, Native American communities and things like that. Um, so bef- in Africa, <laughs> I do not think that um, all Africans were praying to Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> and religion was a t- a, used as a tool to oppress people and still is to this day. Um, and yeah. rural black people. But, um, uh, you know, it's something that um, black communities, I think, have clung to. And, you know, f- there's various reasons for that. I'm not going to get into all that. But I just think um, this is an this sort of um, inability to accept um, your uh, sexual identity um, or your gender identity uh, or society being able to do the same comes from this um, Euro-centric um, idea that everybody's either a boy or a girl and a couple has to be a man and a woman. 
So yeah, and it starts really early too. And um, I remember when my kids were little, we went to a little boy's birthday party mm-hmm. in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. and he was turning like six or something. He was mm-hmm. little, mm-hmm. and um, somebody as a joke gave him a Barbie doll as a present, and uh, he opened it up and he screamed and what? threw it across the room. Oh my yeah, God. like like it was a poison or a bomb, you know, like oh it God. was just ridiculous. And, and everybody laughed mm-hmm. and I was horrified. <laughs> it's like, why, why would you do that? Did you yeah. get that? And it's just awful. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. He didn't, I mean, he definitely did not come up to that on his own volition. Somebody right. taught him that. Yeah. Yeah. And it starts even before we we enter this world, right? There's gender reveals. Right. Um, are you having a boy? Or are you having a girl? And the doctor is the one who decides whether you're a boy or a girl. Like, and so you, people who are non-binary and stuff like uh, non-binary or trans um, have the opportunity to make that decision for themselves. Um, and uh, I, I, which I think is a really wonderful, beautiful thing. Um, but again, you're, uh, you're right. It starts from really early. So I've been trying to like tell my kid, like we play the game, guess who? <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm like, um, does your person present as a, uh, a boy or uh, a girl? <laughs> yeah. And so anyway, a good way to do it. Yeah. You know, I, it's parenting is hit and miss and I fuck oh. up a lot, but yeah, I'm well, that, that's a, that's a good, good way to do it. I like that. Yeah. Hey podcast listeners. I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of president John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, Glitches in the Matrix, Cult Leaders, Missing 411, Night Marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian Devil Worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3AM, the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go. So uh, now we are going to get into how not to get murdered. So 
If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> we did it. This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. That's right. These are very generic tips, um, but they're sort of safety tips for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, as well as the people in their lives who might love them. Um, so it can be lonely, especially in COVID. Yeah. Um, so find a safe community online um, where um, there's other people like you. Keep uh, privacy settings in mind when you do this and protect your personal information and be a good citizen. If you see some fuckery, um, report that shit uh, or call them out. Um, that led me to an online dating app and I wanted to shout it out. It's called Thirst, which is a dating app just for BIPOC LGBTQ people, Black, Indigenous people of color. Um, and while no dating app is completely safe and secure, there are some things that you can do to be safer. If you find a potential date, do some more um, screening before agreeing to meet in person. Ask for more pictures, do a Google search, even check the old dinosaur of a Facebook. Um, ask for a phone number, and if you get a bad vibe or they come on too strong, red flag, run the other way. Um, once you do pick a date, try meeting in public. Um, let friends know where you are and consider a group date um, so that, you know, safety in numbers. And you can also let the bartender and the waiter know that you are on an online online date. So when you like take your get your order that you're like, uh, thirst, am I right? Or Tinder, am I right? <laughs> you know? Uh, so, uh, and then LGBTQ people are also in danger of violence from the police if they are unhoused, in poverty, and have to engage in sex work in order to survive. Um, they are more likely to come into contact with police for these reasons. Um, we spent a lot of time last week talking about alternatives to calling the police and avoid putting people in harm's way, but uh, by getting them connected with the resources they need to find housing, help with poverty, and find employment. So listen to, listen to last week's episode or check the so notes for those tips. Um, but I think they apply to um, this instance of um, how we can keep LGBTQ communities who might be vulnerable and really provide help and without bringing the police in, in, into the mix. Um, and then for those um, who are LGBTQ and feeling hopeless, especially now um, that we are in COVID, the Trevor Project's Trevor Lifeline is open 24-7 and the phone number is 1-866-488-7386 by a chat every day. By you can uh, text START to 678-678 for a lifeline, for support, um, for help finding resources, whatever your situation might be. So that's Yeah, and we'll put these in our show notes so you guys can uh, check those out. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by any BIPOC, LGBTQ, any, any marginalized groups or any true crime goodies. So um, I wanted to shout out Nancy. Um, and it's a podcast we've shouted out before, but their last two episodes have been about Black trans lives. And uh, another one was uh, titled All the Fine Girls Be There about the shakedown um, which is a black lesbian hip hop strip club. Oh, wow. Yeah. And there's a documentary uh, to go along with it. And it 
it just blew my mind. It was so riveting. Uh, I wish I could have, I wish I knew it was around when I was coming up. <laughs> um, and again, uh, Nancy is a podcast about all things LGBTQ. It's hosted by Kathy Tu and Tobin Lowe, two BIPOC BFFs. Uh, and so shout out also to the podcast Segregation, spelled out G-A-Y in big capital letters. Um, <laughs> it was brought to our attention by a listener named Kim G. And Segregation is a podcast for LGBT men of color to reclaim their space in a community that often leaves them out. Um, and I've said that before, like, I think when, at one point we brought up um, Pete Buttigieg and how my issue with him was that he gets to cling to the fact that he's he's a white man. And when he comes yeah. into the world, he presents as a white man, even though he is also gay. Um, and um, anyway, this community can be un- unwelcoming to any members that aren't white, um, straight seeming or conventional in another way. So um, his podcast is really great, great guests, and uh, they hold he holds nothing back. So awesome. what, do you, what do you got, Beth? HBO's documentary called I'll Be Gone in the Dark premiered this week. It's a six part documentary that is apparently it's well, it's about the Golden State Killer, but not about the killer himself, but rather about the survivors. Yeah. And it's framed through the life of the late crime writer Michelle McNamara, who wrote the book I'll Be Gone in the Dark and who coined the moniker The Golden State Killer. I haven't been able to watch it yet, but it sounds really interesting. So I wanted to uh, let you guys all know that it's out there. So if you're interested, uh, check it out on HBO. Thank you, Beth. Yes, I will be tuning into I'll Be Gone. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. Um, so, uh, well, that's it for today, folks. But Beth, where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. Everything my favorite white lady says is true. (laughs) Uh, This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there. detective came and knocked on the door and I said is it Renee and he just gave me that solemn look 
It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.